welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We'll be looking at two texts today as we wrap up the uh, chapter on the return of the Lord Jesus with some final comments in Luke 21. I'll be reading verse 27, which is the, the keynote verse that that entire chapter rises to, and then Daniel uh, chapter 4 as well. So with me, will you hear the word of God? Jesus said, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And then the words from Daniel chapter 4 of an earthly king, Nebuchadnezzar, about the greatness of God. Verse 34 of Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? This is God's eternal word. And it trumpets forth his authority as no man can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, these great scriptures. We thank you for the great event that is coming, the return of the Lord Jesus to the planet. We thank you, Lord, that it will conclude the, the great story of your glory your triumph over evil, your redemption of a people, and your keeping your promises. As such, it is the most supernaturally opposed event that will ever occur other than the crucifixion itself. And so it's no surprise, Lord, that this uh, message is one that is opposed by the enemy himself. It's been a remarkable week as I've contemplated completing the story and talking about all that you will accomplish when your son returns, that it's been a week of spiritual battle for me. Even through the night last night, sleepless and battling mentally. And I ask for your strength today. I ask that uh, the full story of all that you're going to accomplish through the return of your son will be heard by your people. That it'll be rejoiced in by those who are ready for his return. And that it will soberly impact the heart of anyone who is not. So grant strength to me and grant clarity from your word. By the Holy Spirit's power, we pray over the preaching today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the president of the United States uh, made a statement that got the world world more worried. Uh, It was a statement that was delivered in New York City. The news coverage began on October 7th, and uh, news uh, networks around the world were disturbed by what he said. I'll just read a couple pieces of the coverage. CNN, October 7, 2022. President Joe Biden on Thursday delivered a stark warning about the dangers behind Russian President Vladimir Putin's nuclear threats as Moscow continues to face military setbacks in Ukraine. Quoting the president, quote, first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon. If in fact things continue down the path they are going, I don't think, the president said, there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not and up with Armageddon, end of quote. A remarkable statement, a disturbing one that made its way around the news desks of the world. It disturbed a lot of people. CNN in later coverage said this, quote, 
to learn that an American president is talking so frankly about the possibility of nuclear Armageddon, as Joe Biden did Thursday, is bone-chilling, end of quote. So you probably saw it, read it, and uh, saw the, the, the world's reaction to it. Maybe it disturbed you a little bit to think that the actions of man could possibly provoke Armageddon. Well, let me uh, talk a little bit about that as I introduce my remarks today and we touch in final remarks about the the return of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the, The earth's definition of Armageddon is to take a biblical word and use it to describe a human disaster. The word Armageddon is used as the president used it and as the the news media reacted to it. It's kind of a generic term to refer to any type of catastrophic conflict, especially as it's seen as likely to result in widespread destruction or the annihilation of human life. It's, It's used to talk about international conflict, obviously. And it's something that man brings upon himself or man can avoid. Well, Uh, that's different than the Bible's definition. If you were worried that the events of nations, the missteps of Russia, the reaction of America, the, the curious and disturbing reaction of the nations to the current war standing in Europe are going to result in Armageddon, uh, I want to put your mind at ease. You don't need to worry about that. Some people think that the the actions of man are going to derail God's plan. No, they are in the, the, uh, the complete supervision of God's plan. No misstep of man, no mistake by a nation is going to suddenly throw history into Armageddon. Nothing's going to disturb the plan that God already has for the end of nations. Only the hand and the plan of God will end history. That's why I read Daniel 4 to you. Only the hand and the plan of God will end history. And when God designed Armageddon, he didn't design it as some kind of reaction to a human misstep, either by a nation or a ruler. It is a great battle that he himself is going to call and converge at the end of history. I gave you Earth's definition of Armageddon, a a catastrophic conflict that could come about by accident. The Bible talks about Armageddon as a climactic future battle. And it's ultimately going to be a battle not just among nations, but between God and the forces of evil. And it's recorded in the book of Revelation, as you know, and also in other of the Old Testament prophets. The word Armageddon ultimately comes from the Hebrew word Harmageddon, which means the Mount of Megiddo. It's a location north of Jerusalem that's about 20 miles in length and 15 miles in width. It was described by Napoleon as the greatest natural battlefield on earth. It's been the site of many conflicts over the years of nations gathered against each other. But if you read the book of of Revelation the way I do, I'm I'm what you call a futurist interpreter. I believe that Revelation from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through the end of the book is all about things yet to come. It's not symbolic of church history. It's not all captured by past events that have already occurred. And it's certainly not an allegorical description of things and events that are not humanly real. It's about human events. It's about nations. It's about actions that the world will experience, but those are yet future. The Bible says that the climactic human reaction against God in that great prediction of Revelation will be the battle of Armageddon. It'll be a real battle in the future near the end of the seven-year tribulation period. In fact, at the very end. Demonic influences will have caused the kings of the earth to gather their armies for one final all-out assault on Jerusalem. The Antichrist will have been leading that charge, according to Revelation chapter 16. But as the nations converge against Jerusalem and against the people of the book and against all those that believe in the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ will return to earth, as I described to you in verse 27 of Luke 21. And every eye shall see him. He'll return to earth with the armies of heaven at Revelation 19. 
and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and with the word of his mouth, Revelation 19 tells us, he will defeat and destroy all the armies of man gathered against Jerusalem and ultimately against him. Then he will cast the Antichrist, the leader of that great rebellion, and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Then he'll bind Satan, and he'll set up his earthly kingdom on earth for a thousand years, according to Revelation 20 and the Old Testament prophets. And we will rule and reign with him, and Israel will be restored, as I've taught you over these weeks. And after that, the, the entire heaven and earth will be destroyed and remade, made new, and we will be led with him into the eternal state after all wicked men and women who've rejected him will be judged and sent to hell. You know that's the arc of history that I've taught you over these weeks, and we've seen it reflected in chapter 21. That's the biblical future, and that's what's going to happen under God's keeping and according to God's timeline, and no mistake of nations or action of man can derail it, delay it, or cause it not to be. So in case you were worried, I want to take that off your mind. God is in charge of the affairs of nations. And when Armageddon comes, notice that it will be centralized upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will all be focused upon verse 21, 27 of chapter 21 in Luke, the visible return of his son. You see, God is sovereign. That means he possesses supreme power and he's in complete control of all events and all people. And he is able to accomplish whatever he pleases. His plan is not broken by man. He's independent and unlimited. That's why the words in Daniel 4 that I read to you are so powerful. The king in that Old Testament verse said, all the inhabitants of the earth are recounted as nothing to God, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven, among the supernatural realm, and among the inhabitants of the earth. God does according to his will. So history, as you've heard many times people say, quaintly but accurately, is his story. He authors it, he supervises it, he will bring it to his great conclusion. And that conclusion is going to center around the return of his son. That's what Luke 21 has all been about. The disciples asked the Lord Jesus that night, and Matthew 24 records their clearer words, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus gave them this long teaching in which he did describe numerous signs that would occur, some in their lifetime and then over the arc of history as I've described to you and all the way until the end and the tribulation time. You know, we've gone through the signs. There were six of them. Spiritual deception, verse 8 of chapter 21, would rise and would increase all the way through the times of the end. And we're, of course, seeing that happen today and it will be in manifest form in the tribulation. So this goes overall all time this chapter second sign was human and natural upheaval beginning at verse 9 nation against nation and massive natural cataclysms and other events increasing in frequency jesus said like birth pains in matthew 24 in intensity and in frequency until the time of his return and we see that throughout history but in our day in a unique way and during the tribulation in the ultimate way it's all going to be just as he promised the third sign was rising persecution, verse 10 and following to verse 19, where prices will be paid for being uh, allied with the Lord Jesus Christ. Persecution is rising today. It'll be at its zenith with the Antichrist. We know all of these things were part of what Jesus said to look for. And this chapter is for every generation alive since his time and into the time of the tribulation. Believers will be reading this passage who've come to Christ in the tribulation time and will gain insight and courage from it. Jesus said the fourth sign will happen in the middle of the tribulation. That was verses 20 to 24, where he talked about the armies of the world gathering against Jerusalem, wanting to exterminate the people of the book and the people of the God of the Bible. And so we see that happening twice during the tribulation, one at the midpoint where the Antichrist himself rises and demands to be worshipped as God by the world, and then right at the end in Revelation 19, where he gathers the armies again to finally exterminate Jerusalem. 
Jesus Christ returns at that point, but not before two final signs. The fifth sign, Jesus said, is in verse 25. We studied it, that there will be astronomic upheaval, signs in the skies. The universe will be upended, as it were, of course, as never before in created history. And then the final sign will be him. He'll be his own sign. Verse 27, you will see the sign of the Son of Man, Matthew says, and he will return. So six signs that Jesus gave. So the return of Jesus is absolutely certain, but it won't happen through the misstep of man, the mistake of nations, and it won't be derailed by any of those things. You might see things happen in your lifetime and then go see Jesus that, in your mind, turn, turn the whole timeline of God back. Something might happen to this nation in which it no longer exists in the way that that you thought it would. Something may happen in regard to the other nations. Events may occur. There could be a nuclear event in our future prior to the return of Jesus. We don't know. We can't predict it. But no matter what misstep of man or action of the nations happens, God's plan is going to go forward. And what Jesus said happens in, in Luke 21 is going to transpire. The nations will be here as long as he wants them to be here. Israel will be at the focal point of all of their agonies and activity as God wants it to be. Their sin will deepen, their defiance will rise, and someday the tribulation will occur, the Antichrist will stand, and all these events will happen. Will they happen in in the next few years? No one can tell you. Will they happen centuries from now? No one can tell you. But will they happen? Thank you. That's the point of this rather lengthy introduction. It's to remind you not to be disturbed by the movements of man, to be certain of the plan of God. Now, as I said, God's plan for the return of his son is the centerpiece of the final moment of history. The battle of Armageddon isn't the great point. It's just, a, it's just a, a table setting for the return of Jesus when every eye shall see him and he takes control of planet Earth. When he comes back, God will be writing the final chapter in his dealings with human history. Now I want to get, really, after that introduction, I really want to get to the to the rhetorical question I'm going to answer in this message. We've learned a lot over the last seven or eight weeks about the future. And it all rotates to this final verse in verse 27 when the Son of Man returns. We've learned what's going to happen. But the question I want to answer today is that as God controls all these things, As man can't stop them, as he brings about the father, the return of his son, what is is his goal? What is he planning to accomplish? You ever wondered about that? We read about the return of Jesus. We study prophecy. We consider the signs that Jesus talked about and wonder, are we seeing dimensions of that today? We know that history is going to end this way, but have you ever asked yourself the question, why is God going to do this? And what is the purpose of the return of his son? Why does Jesus have to come back? What is he going to accomplish? Because King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 said it well, that that God accomplishes all of his will according to his will. So God has a purpose in everything. So what are the purposes behind the return of his son? What will the return of Jesus accomplish that can only be accomplished by his return to take over the planet? That's the question I'm going to answer today, having Set your mind at rest about the actions of man. Let's talk about this great event, the return of Jesus. And I want to answer the question, what are the things he's going to accomplish that can only happen if Jesus comes back? There are a lot of things that God is going to bring to a close with the return of his son. Too many to cover in one message. I've been studying them, going over them again in my meditation. I'm just going to limit myself to four today. Four great goals that can only be accomplished by the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here they are. You can jot them down. This is what I've seen as I've gone through the Word of God. What is he going to accomplish? And what must the Son of Man return 
to make sure happens. Number one, he's going to fulfill his promises. He is going to fulfill his promises. You see, God never acts without purpose, and most of the time he promises and tells us what he's going to do. And that is especially true with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be the most promised event in world history. I've gone over this with you. I've already taught taught you in this series that there are hundreds of different prophecies surrounding the return of Jesus all the way through both the Old and the New Testament. Hundreds of prophecies, promises that God has made. And so he has to fulfill them, doesn't he? He's gone on historical record hundreds of times. 27 of the 39 Old Testament books contain clear prophecies that tell us that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's got to be true to his own word. If Christ doesn't return, God's word is worthless and the will of God is is without trust. 25 of the 27 New Testament books contain direct or indirect prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it stands to reason that God has to fulfill all of these things. The the entire Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the coming deliverer, the return of the Lord Jesus. One source I read this week said there are at least 333 distinct promises about the coming of Jesus, both his first coming and his second coming, that are standalone. In other words, they're distinct just in the Old Testament. Now, more than a hundred of those prophecies were literally fulfilled at Christ's first arrival when he was born into time. I've studied them as a Bible student. It's remarkable, the detail. Some of you have done this too. The detail is immense. Prophecies made centuries before the events happened. Over a hundred of them, all fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus. So it stands to reason then, doesn't it, that the remaining 200 or so of Old Testament messianic prophecies about his second coming are also going to be fulfilled. And are they going to be fulfilled to the letter? Of course, because God's integrity is on the line. And all of that requires the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in a way, in the final book of the New Testament that that was inspired by him, made his own statement. Did you know that there are six times in the book of Revelation where Christ himself says, Behold, I am coming quickly. So in the final revelation of our revelation, Christ promised six different times. So, He's got to do it to fulfill his promises. You might ask, what are some of the the key promises and places in which the Bible says that Jesus has to come back? I'm so glad you asked. You know, I love it when you ask me for lists because I always have one. Here's just a few. Old Testament, Psalm 2, one of the great uh, landmarks in the scripture. Psalm 2, the father speaking to the son, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's God's promise to his son. And it's in his word. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's going to happen, son. I'm going to make you the king of the world. The first time you arrive, you'll be looked at as the scum of the world. Oh, that's what you have to do to suffer for my beloved. But one day I will make the nations your heritage. Isaiah 9 talks about both arrivals of Jesus. It's a prophecy of both of his arrivals in one phrase. Isaiah 9, 6. We always use this at Christmas, and rightly so, but we can only use the first six or seven words. After that, the passage is all about the future. Did you know that? Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. How many have that as a familiar Christmas verse? It's on some of the cards you sent last year. And we think that's all about Christmas. But no, we look at the phrase Prince of Peace farther on. We think he came as the Prince of Peace. No, he didn't. He came as the suffering Savior the first time. Everything after the words a son is given is about his second coming. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Did that happen the first time? No, the government put him to death. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is that what the crowds called him on the day of his betrayal? No. They said, crucify him. So uh, the, the, this, this scripture talks about two arrivals. The first arrival is, in, in the first part of the verse, he will come as a child born, and he will be the son given, given as a savior, given at the cross, given to die for sinners. But when he rises and goes to heaven, a great time will elapse, and one day his second coming will be different. He won't come as a suffering servant. He's going to come as almighty God the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then verse 7 will be true. The the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Jesus Christ is coming back and he's coming back visibly to the planet and every eye shall see him and he will take it over and rule it in peace and authority. That's talking there about what I've taught you to be the millennial kingdom, his thousand year reign over a partially renewed earth. We're going to be a part of that as believers. All of that was in Isaiah's great prophecy. There's two comings. He was faithful to come the first time, according to a hundred plus prophecies. Will he be faithful to come the second? He has to be, because the Father put his word behind it. Some teach that Jesus Christ is not going to return visibly. He's already returned invisibly. You cannot teach that text that way. In fact, the, the other passages I'm going to read to you can't be taught that way either. He will come, and he will take authority over the planet. Daniel 7. Jesus quoted and referred to this in in many different times of his ministry. But Daniel said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, heaven there came like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's the son of man? Daniel saw a vision of the future where he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, who called himself the son of man more than any other title. Who is the Ancient of Days? God the Father. And the Son of Man, Jesus, was presented before God the Father, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel looked into the future and saw the kingdom of the world given to the Son by the Father. And it'll go and last forever. That's going to be a real event in real human affairs. It's not just a spiritual return in the hearts of people. It is a literal return over the affairs of nations. How about the New Testament? Mark chapter 14, Jesus referred to Daniel's prophecy and owned it as he stood before the high priest who was trying him on the last night of his life in a phony trial. The scripture says he remained silent, Mark 14, 61, and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. (laughs) Jesus said, I am the I am from Daniel. Oh, I am almighty God. And by the way, you'll be seeing me again. You'll see me again from hell as you see me return, the one that you crucified. Make no mistake, Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm the one Daniel promised. Now Jesus will be coming back to render justice to those like that high priest who reject his love and authority, but he's also going to come back to bring joy to those of us who want to see him, right? There's another place, John 14 in the New Testament, that talks about the return of Jesus. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I may or may not ever return again. It's all a fielder's choice. If the nations work it out and events come together, it's a possibility. You know what the Greek says? I will come again. What's the English say? 
I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, that you, there you may be also. Remember I told you the return of Jesus is in two phases as I understand the scripture. Oh yes, he's returning visibly at the Mount of Olives at the end of history to judge the world, but he's returning invisibly at a moment called the rapture to come and take his beloved, his wonderful church, his bride, to be with him out of wrath and into heaven. That's what John 14 is referring to. It's the shepherd pro- shepherd's promise to come for his sheep. That's going to be joyful. There's other places we could go. Second Thess 1, verse 7, which actually talks about him coming in justice. One day he's going to come back and be revealed, verse 7 of Second Thess, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's coming. He's coming with justice for those that have rejected him. But First Thess 4 says he's coming with joy for those that love him. For the Lord himself, 1 Thess 4.16, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Second Thess talks about his visible coming at the end of history in wrath for the, those that have rejected him. First Thess talks about his coming at the rapture in love for those that await him. Are you waiting for Jesus? I sure am. And so you see, the first thing he's going to accomplish when his son returns is he'll have kept his promises. All of them. See, my Bible says in Titus 1-2 that God cannot lie. It says in Numbers 23-19 that he's not like man. He, he doesn't change his mind. He has said over a hundred times, my son is coming back. Is he going to keep his promise? Oh, yes. If he's a God that can't keep his promises, he can't keep his people. That's the first thing he's going to accomplish, and that's going to be a marvelous thing. The second thing he's going to accomplish when his son returns is he's going to complete the goal of returning for his people. You see, he has to come back as he has to return for his people. The first point is about closing history, but the second is about the fact that he promised to come for his people. You see, he established a relationship with you as a member of his church. You may not understand this. There's some beautiful imagery. Remember, I I touched on it in John 14 and the fact that he says he's going to come back for his beloved. Today, we're in a time that I would call the church age when God is building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And ever since Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, the church is being built. How's the church built? When somebody like you comes out of darkness and into light through the gospel breaking on your heart. And you become a member of the body of Christ, also known as the bride of Christ. You see, Jesus began a relationship with you. He became your bridegroom. And he made a commitment to come back for his bride. This is fascinating. I draw great comfort from what I'm about to share with you, the imagery that Jesus borrowed in John 14. So Christ is currently gathering his elect into one great body, the church, and the church's role is to become a pure bride for him. We're called the bride of Christ in Ephesians and other places. We're to make ourselves ready to see him when he comes. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What he was saying there is that Christ is the bridegroom. When I drew drew you out of darkness and and helped you become Christians, I, I saw you become the bride of Christ. And my goal now as your pastor is to help you in every way become more pleasing so that when the bridegroom comes to get you, you'll be pleasing to him. That's what every pastor wants to do for his flock. He wants to help them defeat sin in their lives so they can more reflect the Lord Jesus and be pure at his coming. 
Paul said, that's my passion for you. And all of that symbolism, the bride of Christ, the bridegroom of the church, and the purifying of the bride is all based on, on, a, on a set of images that were very familiar to the New Testament Jews to whom this was written. It all rotated around the image of a Jewish bride waiting for her groom. Hang on with me. I'm going to go through a little culture with you that I think is tied to what Jesus taught. There were three phases to the wedding relationship that, that, a, that a couple had in ancient Israel. Joseph and Mary is an example. Three phases. There was the paying of a bridal price. There was the waiting of the bride for her groom. And there was the return of the groom for the bride. All of these took place over a span of time. And there what Jesus was talking about in John 14 when he said, oh, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am there, you may be also stick with me because you're the bride and I'm the bridegroom. His hearers that night in the upper room would have understood this teaching because they would have linked it to the bridal experience. Three phases. The paying of the bridal price was the first thing that happened. In New Testament times, um, marriages were most often arranged. Just kind of got to get over that, you know? My grandparents in the old country in Yugoslavia, Germany, they had an arranged marriage. How did it work out? Well, over 60 years, that's all I can tell you. So parents would get together and arrange the marriage. They'd get together and agree by contract to have their children marry each other. Then the young groom, the young husband-to-be, would come with his father to where the bride lived, and they would arrange to pay a dowry, a bridal price for her. The son would pay it with the father's approval. And it was a sacrificial price. It wasn't a small sum. Once the price had been paid for the bride, the son would leave the bride and leave where she lived and go back to his father's house. Now, in the New Testament, I think this is reflected by the fact that in Acts 20, 28, the Bible says that God purchased the church with the blood of his own son. I think that reflects the sacrificial life and death and the payment of Jesus on the cross. Now, the bride was the recipient of that wonderful gift of grace and a relationship had now been started that was complete and, uh, pardon me, that was permanent. There was a total commitment made by the son or the groom when he paid the price. Now, the the bride would, would then wait where she was And then the waiting period would start, known as a betrothal. That could go any length of time. Most of the time, it was a year or more. The bride stayed where she was, and she prepared herself to be as pleasing to the groom as she possibly could when he returned. And how she looked, and in her character. She guarded her character and kept herself totally pure. What did the groom do? He went back to his father's house in Hebrew culture, and he got busy building an addition on to the father's house because that's where the new bride and groom would have their first dwelling. Didn't Jesus say, I go to prepare a place for you? I think there's beautiful connection and imagery here. The groom goes away and prepares a place for his bride. The bride stays where she is and prepares herself for him, for his pleasure and approval. Oh, the beautiful imagery to me strikes me. I think the entire age we're in now is a time when Jesus Christ came and did the paying of the bridal price on that cross. And he committed himself to build the church and sanctify her when he went to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. Now he's building the church. He's drawing each member of the bride in. That would be you. That would be me. And in this time, we are laboring to make ourselves as pleasing to him as we possibly can because he said, one day I'm coming back. What's that going to be? Personal opinion, biblically, the rapture of the church. 
It's interesting that the third stage was the returning. There was the paying of the bridal price. There was the waiting of the bride for the groom. And then finally, there was the returning of the groom for the bride. This is where it really gets awesome. Because you see, at a time of the father's choosing, the groom's father would choose the time, and then he'd tell his son, son, it's time. Go get your bride. Then the the son would gather a bridal party together, and he would journey from the father's house back to where the bride was. And at a time known only to the father and the son and completely unknown to the bride, she had to be ready at all times because she never knew what day or night he would return for. But the son would come back and the best man would stand next to that that groom outside the, the home of that bride, probably at night. And the best man would shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And everybody in that town, and particularly one heart in that house, would hear that great shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And they would know that the return for the bride was happening. And that bride would gather her her trousseau, and she was ready at a moment's notice, and she would come out of that house, and then she would take the hand of the groom, and he would take her from there back to his father's house, after which there would be the consummation of their relationship and something beautiful called the marriage feast, which I link to Revelation 19.6, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the, great, the, the wedding feast that's talked about there. So are you with me? Have you stayed with me? Do you see the beauty of this imagery? All of that that I've gone over with you is to teach you that Jesus Christ has to come back because he has to return for his bride. He has to return for his church because he made a commitment to her. If you're part of the bride of Christ, do you know that you're one of the great reasons he has to come back? He's coming back for you. He paid the price for you. Now you're you're preparing yourself for him. He's not going to disappoint you. He's coming back for you. Aren't you thrilled with that? I'm as excited as can be. I want to hear that voice right now. Somehow we'll hear it. There'll be a trumpet, there'll be a voice, and his church alone will know that the rapture, the bridegroom has come. And then boom, boom, we'll be out of here, and, and, and the promise of Jesus in John 14 will be completed, for you will be with me where I am. Why is the Lord coming back? Well, he's got purposes to complete. He's got to return for his people. Here's the last two. What's he going to accomplish that he can only accomplish with the return of his son? Here's the third. He's going to accomplish the punishment of sin. Now we go from the joyful to the judgmental. One of the most disturbing verses in the New Testament, if you've rejected the Lord Jesus, ought to be John 5.22, where Jesus, gentle Jesus, said that all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son. All human beings will face him at a point in time. And he has to return for that to happen. I said he's going to return for the joy of his bride invisibly at the rapture. He's going to return for the judgment of all that have rejected him visibly at the end of time. This refers to that second appearing, that visible return. Revelation 19 talks about it. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he what? Judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Why is that name so prominent? Because Jesus promised, I will judge sin. I'm going to keep the word of my Father. Time 
is over. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You see, there will be a time when the nations will be judged. It will be that visible return in Revelation 19. See, Jesus is going to judge the world in two ways. He's going to judge nations and he's going to judge individuals. Nations are judged at the moment he returns. All the nations on the earth at that time, circling Jerusalem, standing against Jesus Christ, the Bible says he will destroy them with the word of his mouth, verse 15. Someday every political and social and philosophical and religious and economic and national and global structure that has ever defied God is going to be judged in a moment. Everything. So he'll judge the nations when he returns. Then the millennium will occur, and then finally he'll make a new heaven and earth, and he'll have an individual judgment. It's recorded in Revelation 20 and John 5. There'll be a great resurrection of all the dead. And then nations will have been judged when he returned visibly. Individuals will be judged when he he stands there and he is before the great white throne of judgment. It all is going to happen. Why does Jesus have to return? To punish sin. To punish it in every dimension that he ever ever seen it on earth, national and religious and structural, but also to punish every individual that's ever defied his love and rejected his son. You say, this is a very, very heavy statement. Yeah, it is. But if you've ever tasted and seen sin and you're born again, you know it has to happen. You see, Jesus Christ is not coming back the same way he came the first time. He came as a suffering servant for you the first time. The second time he's going to come as a final judge. J.C. Ryle was a Bible teacher at the turn of the century. I love him. And uh, he talked about the two comings of Jesus, the first coming and the second. He said this, the second coming of Christ shall be utterly unlike the first. He came the first time in weakness, a tender infant born of a poor woman in a feeding trough at Bethlehem, unnoticed, unhonored, and scarcely known. Well, he will come the second time in royal dignity with the armies of heaven around him, to be known, recognized, and feared by all the peoples of the earth. He came the first time to suffer, to bear our sins, to be reckoned the curse, to be despised and rejected, unjustly condemned and slain. Oh, but he shall come the second time to reign and rule, to put down every enemy beneath his feet, to take the kingdom of this world for his inheritance, to rule the nations with righteousness, to judge all people, and to live forevermore. Oh, how vast the difference, and how mighty the contrast. Why does Jesus have to come back? For the world to see him for who he fully is. He came as the suffering Lamb of God in his first steps on the planet, when his footstep touches the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem's future, he will be coming back as the Lion of Judah, the King of the earth, and the Judge of all men and women. The story of Jesus has to be finished. It's the moral story of this universe. You cannot stop it. He will come. All you can do is decide how you will meet him. Why must Jesus come back? What is he going to accomplish? What can only be accomplished by the return of the Lord Jesus as scripture describes it? Well, finally, he's going to come back because he has to pass judgment on Satan. The architect of human sin. You can see see, he has to finish this, which is the great issue and image of evil through all of universal history. That has to be dealt with 
too. See, the destruction of Satan demands this. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Bible talks about the fact that Satan is the enemy of your soul, was the architect in the beginning of evil in the experience of the universe, the architect and the arranger of human sin. And he's active in the world today. He was defeated at the cross in terms of his death hold on people through sin. But the Bible says he still exercises a kind of dominion over this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, Christ referred to the devil as the ruler of this world. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In 1 John 5, the apostle called him and said that the whole world lies under the sway or under the power of the wicked one. There's a sense in which Satan still is active in power over the world, and he has to be dealt with too. It's part of setting the universe right. It's true that when Christ atoned for sin, he dealt Satan the crushing blow in terms of his power over death and hell. But when he finally returns, he's going to destroy Satan's claim to world dominion. That happens in Revelation 19. And in Revelation 20, the Bible says Satan is chained and thrown into a bottomless pit. Even after that, he'll be let out the end of the millennium. He'll still conspire to deceive people against Christ. Christ will finally judge him and cast him into the lake of fire at the end of all of that. But it all is moving with his return. So, why is Jesus coming back? What's going to be accomplished by the return of Jesus alone? God is going to fulfill all the promises he ever made. Keep his name clean. He's going to return for his people who long for his arrival. The bridegroom is going to come for his bride, the rapture. He's going to punish human sin and deal with the great matter of wickedness and evil in the universe finally and completely. And he'll pass judgment and condemn the one who was the architect of it all, the devil himself. He has to come back to do all of that. Aside from simply wrapping up history and receiving his glory. He's coming back. But you need to be ready for him. Because in the words of C.S. Lewis in the case for Christianity, quote, this time it will be God without disguise. disguised as as a baby and grew up as a man who was unbecoming to us. They hardly knew who they crucified. But Lewis says this time when he returns, it'll be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature, but it will be too late then to choose your side. People ask, is Jesus coming back? That's not the great question. God promised he will. The great question is, how will you receive him?